tonight. Uh, looking forward to seeing what God has to say. Let's take a few moments and pray. And we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thanks for uh, just, uh, just the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that uh, you, you move. You move in power. You move in anointing. Uh, God, there's uh, so much that you want to do in us and through us by your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for that. I pray, God, tonight we'd yield to you. We'd practice yielding to your spirit. We would practice allowing you having your way. We would practice listening to you. We would practice hearing you. We would practice obeying you. We would practice, God, what it is to interact with you uh, through the power of that spirit. And so we just ask you that you'd anoint our time. I pray that you'd anoint me as I teach. I ask God that what you have to say would not only speak to those that are here in this room, but would speak to those that uh, this this podcast reaches all around the world. And so I ask that you would preach, uh, speak today, that you would proclaim today, that you would uh, bring uh, this prophecy forward today uh, through me to speak into people's lives. Uh, I pray that uh, the gospel is spoken and preached uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give you thanks. Uh, we ask God you to bless this time. We ask God that we would yield and allow you to do what you want to do. For we give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, we can go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. And while you're opening there, we received a message this week uh, from China. Uh, from our friend in China. And so Erin had sent us uh, a message with her crew. And so I want to just take some time and play that for you. So this is from Erin and her crew in China. All right. You guys hear it? Hey, it's Erin. We're just here having dinner with all the kimchi people. Just wanted to say hi. I'm Sammy. This is Laura. Hello. Uh, I am Yisling Mei. My name is Shimei Xia. <laughs> Hello, I'm Susie. Hello, my name is Eva from South Africa. Hi, it's Jeff, also from South Africa. Much love. Please pray for us. Much, much, much love. Hey, hope you guys have a great night. I, I know you already pray for us. I just said, please pray for me anyway. Double prayer, thank you. All right, have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron, for sending that. Uh, we encourage any of our listeners that uh, if you want to leave us a message, you can go to a website at www.speakpipe.com, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E.com, slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word, and you'll see a button there that you can toggle, and you can record a message for us, like leaving a voicemail. 
And if you don't like your message, you can listen to it. You don't like it, you can record another one and delete that one. So um, we'd love to hear from you. It could be just hello. It could be something good that God's doing in your life. It could be a question that you have about Bible study, comment that you have, uh, whatever. Uh, we just love to hear from you and let's and uh, let's know that you're listening. So uh, drop us a just drop us a message and uh, we'll play it for you. Endeavor to play it for you at our next Monday night Bible study. So we're in Matthew chapter nine. I need a volunteer to read verse thirteen. All right, thanks for reading that. A couple things about this verse uh, that I I really like. I mean, you know, that's kind of a weird thing to say because I really like the whole Bible, right? But there are certain parts of the Bible that uh, I hear things or certain things that are said, certain things that are done that stand out to me. And, and it, it appeals to something in me. And there's, something, there's a couple things in this verse that really appeal to me. Uh, the first thing is that this is Jesus responding. Uh, he had called a man named Matthew, Levi, who was a tax collector. And this guy, being a tax collector, was not popular. He wasn't someone that was desirable. He wasn't someone that anyone else cared about, but Jesus cared about him. And that's fairly fascinating to me because he, Levi, Matthew, in a lot of ways, just an outcast. He had made certain decisions in his life to pursue money over family. He pursued money over friends. He pursued money over God. He pursued money over uh, loyalty to his country. He pursued money over just about everything else in his life. And he'd given up everything in his life for money. That's what tax collectors did. No one liked them. And they knew that before they went into it. It wasn't like Matthew decided one day I should be a tax collector and then discovered after he became a tax collector that no one wanted to talk to him. He knew no one would want to talk to him. He knew no one would want to hang out with him. He knew no one, his family would disown him. He knew all these things were going to happen before he became a tax collector because basically just tax collectors were agents of Rome. They, they were backed up by the Roman army, by the Roman military, to exact money from the Jewish people or wherever they happen to be. Well, in this case, it would be the Jewish people. Levi's people were the Jewish people. And so he was given the job, he was given the responsibility by the Roman government to take money from his own people. Now, why that's significant is that the tax collectors weren't paid, per se. So, in other words, Rome didn't send them a check every month. What happened would be that the way that they made their money is that they added money onto whatever they collected from their own people. So Levi was told by Rome, all right, you need to collect, I'm going to use round numbers, $10 per person. And so he had a roll of people that would need to bring him $10 per person. But instead of charging $10 per person because he's got to make a living, he would be charging $12 per person or $15 per person. Or $20 per person, if he wanted to. And some of them did. And so, he would say, they would come, he would set the price, 20 bucks a person, they'd give him the money, that's it. And they had to pay it, not because Levi was a tough guy, but he had the muscle of the Roman military backing him up. And that's how tax collectors were paid. And so, everyone knew 
that he was ripping them off. They knew that. Not only was he representative of an oppressive government that was over them, not only was he a tool of that oppressive government, not only was he a tool of the oppressive government, but he was also ripping them off personally as a person that probably was related to some of them, someone that they had gone to school with, or someone they had known from the synagogue, or someone that they had known for a long time. And so, if you add all those things together, you begin to get a good picture of why nobody liked this guy, or any of these tax collectors. Just didn't like him. And, and so, he had made that decision, that he became a tax collector. Well, Jesus gave him an opportunity, and I want you to think of it this way, at redemption. Because once he became a tax collector, there was no going back. In other words, you don't decide one day, okay, I've ripped you off for the last 10 years, so I'm not going to do this anymore, so... Okay, no hard feelings. It didn't work like that. There were hard feelings. There were just hard feelings. And so, what Jesus offered him, and understand this is what Jesus was offering him, was the opportunity at a new beginning. And, and, and not necessarily within the community he came out of, but Jesus was offering a new community. He was offering a new family. Because his old family had disowned him. His old community had rejected him. He had already been kicked out of the synagogue. He had already been kicked out of everything that he had grown up with, everything he was a part of. He had already been removed from all of those things. That, that, those things had already happened. And so he was alone. Him and his money. And apparently at some point, Matthew realized, Levi realized, that money wasn't going to be the answer. I mean, And a lot of people, once they make money, they kind of figure that out. And, but it takes that. Because if you think about not having money, in your mind, you think money's going to solve your issue. What's your issue? I don't know, but I can buy my way out of it. It's a popular notion that money solves a bunch of issues. Well, the reality of money is that you always spend what you make, pretty much. It's like, you know, when I was first out of college, you know, there was a certain amount of money I'd spend on groceries. Or there was a certain amount of money that I'd spend on whatever it was I'd spend on. I budgeted out everything. And I made a certain amount of money. And I, I would think to myself, well, if I just made another $2,000 per whatever month or year or whatever it was, then I could get all this other stuff. But the reality was is that that's not how it works. Or I could save that money and buy this other thing. That's not how it works. If I made more money, then I'd spend it. Now, I wouldn't maybe do that on purpose, but it's just the way it goes. Because there's always something that needs to be bought. There's always something that needs to be taken care of. And we tend to spend up to whatever it is we're making. And then after that point, you get money, you get money, you get money, and, and you're no longer scraping by this to that, and you realize, well, money's not really the answer because money brings its own complications in and of itself. And so it's got its own problems. So Levi, at some point, just kind of recognized that, apparently. Because when Jesus made the offer to him, it's like, hey, you want to follow me? He didn't offer him money. Right? Does that make sense to everybody? So he wasn't like taking a better offer as far as money was concerned. He was taking a better offer as far as life was concerned. Because something had happened in him where he figured it out that the money wasn't going to do what he thought it was going to do in his life. It just wasn't. And he needed, wanted, desired, and took a 
second chance with Jesus. And so at some point, while Matthew was following Jesus and after he'd been with Jesus, he wanted to bring his old associates to hear Jesus, to meet Jesus. That's kind of a natural thing. And so Matthew, who were his old associates, who were the only people talking to him when Jesus found him? Other tax collectors, yeah. And so he wanted to bring his, his associates along to hear Jesus because, see, in the same way that he had come to certain conclusions in his life, it, I would imagine that he understood that those other tax collectors that found themselves in the same spot that he was in had come to similar conclusions in their lives. And so he wanted to give them an opportunity to hear Jesus. He wanted to give them an opportunity to get a second chance, to get another chance at their life. And so he brought them around to meet Jesus. You see, but the problem, and like I said, the old, his old associates, though, the problem, only problem with that was they're all tax collectors. And so he brought them around to meet Jesus. And of course, there's always somebody that's going to be watching, right? Pharisees hated Jesus. They just didn't like him. They hated him. He challenged their very support and their very power base. That's what he did. And so he was challenging their power base. And, and because of that, they hated him. And so they're always watching him see something wrong. And so when these tax collectors started hanging out, when Matthew's friends, his old associates, started coming around to hear Jesus, trying to come around to hear the gospel. They started coming around to get a second chance with Jesus. The Pharisees saw that. I want you to hear me because this is important. The Pharisees saw that as a bad thing. And, and maybe some of you are thinking, oh, how could that be a bad thing? Well, I've been in plenty of churches around plenty of Christians that think if you start bringing around the wrong people to church, that it's a bad thing. That's what they believe. I mean, I've had families threaten me. Uh, and there were days when we used to go send a car down or send a van down to the rescue mission, and we'd bring a bunch of guys up here from the rescue mission because we had people that worked there. And so they'd go pick people up, guys that they knew from the rescue mission, bring them up here. And I remember having a family one time, because the lifeblood, just to give you a little insight side here, when you're starting a church, you just need people, okay? And you're just looking for people. And you feel like the guy that Jesus told a parable about, he's got a wedding feast, and he invites a bunch of like upstanding citizens and people to it, but none of them want to come. They all make excuses why they can't come. He's like, well, then go out on the highways and the byways and bring out anybody that will come. That's what you feel like, all right, when you're first starting something. But you're always looking for stability. In other words, you know, I'm, I'm starting a church, here on Westcott Street. And this this neighborhood, by its nature, is not stable. It's, it's transitory. Because people that live in this neighborhood sometimes are students. Students are transitory by nature. In other words, they're here for two, three, four, five years, whatever they're here for. Five years is a long time, maybe two years. Average life of a student in any given university is two and a half years. All right? So there's huge turnover. Plus, you have a certain uh, you have you have a certain population of professors that live in this neighborhood. Well, professors, and I'm not saying all professors, but a lot of professors move around. 
they'll, they'll, they'll have a job, but then they'll take a better job somewhere or a better paying job somewhere or one that will give them more prestige or whatever it is they're looking for in a job. Maybe there's some research funds somewhere. Maybe there's something else that they can find somewhere. And so they take a job somewhere else, so that turns over. And so you have teachers and professors that come in and then they leave because that's the nature of things. You have young professionals. You've been around people that are engaging in the job market right now, young professionals in the job market. What you find is that people are more than willing to uproot themselves and move to another city. Where in times past, people didn't like to do that. In other words, they'd get they'd kind of settle in and they'd, they'd make, they'll sell some roots, drop some roots in a city, and that's where they'd be. People don't do that anymore. They look at it as an adventure. There, there's whole careers that are built around. Uh, we had, a few years ago, we had a woman that came into our church. She, she was a nurse. And she had taken a contract, a six-month contract at Upstate for a ridiculous amount of money. Because upstate needed nurses. And so she took a six or nine month contract at upstate, made a ridiculous amount of money nursing, and then moved on to another city where she made a ridiculous amount of money doing that for six or nine months. So people do that. But this is a neighborhood where people live that, that take those kind of contracts or are willing to uproot themselves. So this is a, 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 and there's nothing wrong with any of that. In fact, I think a church in this neighborhood is strategic for that reason. Because this neighborhood is constantly sending people all over the world. And I consider that strategic. But, when you're trying to start something, and you're trying to establish something, you need people that have a certain, at least some income. And so families are good for that. Because families generally are, you know, they're dropping some roots and they're staying around and they're the people that are working and they're the ones that have income. And so really early on in the church, I was kind of left with this kind of a dilemma because I had certain people that were coming in. I mentioned the rescue mission. Well, that was one group that was coming in. And, you know, of course, people that live at the rescue mission aren't normally your most stable of people in a lot of different ways. Some are down on their luck, but some of them have mental issues. Some of them have other issues, whatever it is. Some have drug and alcohol issues, whatever. They have their issues. And so we had this group, these, these groups mixing together. You think about, okay, students, those types. Then you think about your families, young professionals, those types. And then you got your rescue mission guys. And I can remember just really clearly I was left with this kind of a this was my ultimatum. I had a mom come up to me, young family. And the mom says, if you keep getting people in here like these people, talking about the rescue mission guys, we're going to have to find another church. Now, you think about two sides going on, all right? I mean, I'm not stupid, right? I'm thinking stability, money, people that can help us get this thing going and keep it going. I got guys over here that I don't know what's going on with them, drug, alcohol problems, forgot to shower today, whatever else is going on. We'd have people that bathe in the bathroom upstairs, all right? And I just remember saying, and I made a decision, and, and it really wasn't a hard decision, but I, I looked at it and I just made a decision. I said, well, you may have to find another church. 
I'm sorry you feel that way. But the door is open here. And there's going to be people that come in here that are going to make you feel uncomfortable. There's going to be people that come in here that are going to make you feel uh, maybe even unsafe a little bit. I don't know. I can't, I can't answer that, what your sensibilities are. But the door is open. And of all places that people need to be, they're in trouble. This is the place. And so, I don't blame her. I don't blame anything about it. I don't even judge it. All I'm telling you is, is that it is not unheard of for, for well-meaning religious people to judge a situation like Jesus was in right here. Because Jesus was in a situation here where he was surrounded by tax collectors. Who likes tax collectors? Nobody. Nobody. But that's the situation he found himself in. Bunch of tax collectors. As the Bible refers to them. A bunch of sinners. And the Pharisees were aghast at that. They couldn't believe it. Jesus is supposed to be a rabbi. He's supposed to be a prophet. He's supposed to to be, you know, this person's man of righteousness and holiness and all of these things, a teacher. And yet he has surrounded himself by this rabble of tax collectors and sinners. And this is him speaking to the Pharisees, what you read there. And, and this is the part of it that I really like the best. He says this, and this is what caught my eye right from the beginning. He looked at those Pharisees who knew the Scriptures inside and out. They did. And here's what he said to them. Now, okay, now what? Now that you've made your decision, now that you've made your judgment, now that you've decided what you're going to tolerate, now that you've decided that I'm in the wrong, now that you've decided that, that I am no longer worthy of being called a rabbi or a teacher in your mind or your eyes, now that you have lumped me in with all of these tax collectors and sinners, now that you have made this judgment in your life, here's what he tells them. Why don't you go and learn? Now, these were the most learned of all the people. Nobody had more school than these guys. Nobody. They, they had the most learning of anybody in their society, these guys right here. Jesus says, well now, why don't you go and learn? And that was a common phrase with the rabbis when he was about to just drop a huge knowledge bomb on somebody. That, that's, that, that, that was what they said. Now you go and learn. Here's what I want you to learn. And he quotes for him. He says, go and learn the meaning of this. Because I'm about to explain something to you. Somebody look at Hosea 6.6. 6. That was what the scripture was that he dropped on him right then. Hosea 6.6. 6. All right, and so 
you know, the as I said, there'd been a shift in the teachings in the synagogues and among the rabbis toward the prophet. So there was a prophet. And so as he tells him, he's like, what? He's like, okay, so go and learn the meaning of this. And that's the quote from Hosea 6.6. 6. Go and learn the meaning of this. Now, the reason I gave you a real-life example of people judging about who we're hanging out with is that I want you to examine yourself. And I want you to put yourself in the position of hearing Jesus say this. I do. I want you to hear Him. I want you to hear Him say this. Now go and learn the meaning of this. Hosea 6, 6. And you can put the I on there if you want. I need to go learn the meaning of this. Okay? Because that's what he's really saying. And so I want to ask you a question. Somebody read Hosea 6, 6 again. You can read it, Matt, if you want. If you have it still. I'm going to ask you a really simple question. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean that he says that? And I'm not trying to overcomplicate anything. I'm not trying to make this into any kind of a theological question. All I'm asking is, you hear the plain reading of that, right? Those words have meaning in their current state. In that English form that was read there, they have meaning. What does that mean? Because God's speaking there and He tells you something while He's speaking there. Right? He says, I desire. Right? Did you hear that? Okay, what does the word desire mean? I want. This is what I want. Everybody, okay. We all want to know God's will, Right? Oh, I wish I knew God's will. Wow, if God would only tell me His will, I'd do it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I, I wish I had some, some idea about God's will for my life. God's will in this situation. God's will in this question that I have. God's will in what He wants to do. God's will what He wants me to do. God's will. I wish I knew God's will. I wish I knew God's heart like David knew God's heart. Well, now, you have a perfect example here in Hosea 6.6 6 about something that God wants. The desire of God. Now, you think that tells you something about His heart? Probably, right? When you start to understand people, and you understand their desires, you understand their wants, you begin to understand them. You understand what motivates people. You understand what how people react to certain situations. You begin to understand who they are. I mean, that's how we get to know each other. So we share life so we can know one another. That's why we share life. That it's not just a matter of exchanging facts about each other. Which is what I believe a lot of people have done with 
the scriptures, what a lot of people have done with God, what a lot of people have done with the gospel. They, they, they just say, okay, well, let's exchange enough facts about God and then we'll know Him. Well, we don't get to know anybody like that. Not really. If I read someone, some facts about somebody's life, like if I open up a Wikipedia entry on somebody and I read some facts about their life, I don't think I know them. We're not friends. We don't have a relationship. I might know about some about them, but I really don't know, really know them. I just know some facts. We've exchanged some facts. That's about it. But the way that we get to know one another, the way that we actually are able to understand one another, the way that we are to have a relationship with one another is that we share life together. Well, what's important about sharing life? Well, we witness one another making decisions. We witness one another talking and, 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 and exchanging ideas. We witness one another eating. We witness one another doing things together. You know, if you ride in a car with somebody, you get to know some things about them. I don't know if you know that, but you do. You get to know some key things about people right in their car that you might not read on their fact sheet. Because you might learn what kind of music they like or what they listen to on the radio. You might learn, you know, what they do with their used up McDonald's bags, you know, when they're done with them. Or what they eat. Or what they drink. You might learn that they have a pet because you have hair all over you when you sit in the seat. You might learn that they have some latent aggression because of the way that they drive and yell at other drivers. You might learn that they need to wear glasses because they can't see very far without them. There's lots of stuff you can learn from somebody from driving with them. You know, even better, go to their house. Yeah. Spend time in someone's house. And you start to even experience even more about them. And you get to learn even more about them. Or you start seeing people play a sport with somebody or a game with somebody. Then you'll learn some more about them. You see, we're sharing life. And we're getting to know one another. Well, that's the same with God. We, we have to share life with Him. Well, one of the things He's sharing with us here in Hosea 6, 6, and, and we really have to get to know, and we need to go and learn what this actually means, is that God desires mercy. More than sacrifice. And we really need to know that. Most of the Christians I've ever met have been better Pharisees than they've been Christians. And I know that sounds mean, but it's so true. They're a lot better rule followers and a lot better lawgivers than they are people of mercy and grace and love. And that's really a shame. But that was plenty enough to drive me away from the church for a long time as a kid watching how that happened and watching the way people treat each other, watching the way the church operated. Just, I didn't want anything to do with it. I did not want anything to do with that. What I didn't know as a child was that I was watching better Pharisees than I was watching disciples of Jesus. I just didn't know. I thought that's what it was. And that's why I didn't want it. But the truth of the matter was that there's a whole part of this relationship with God that I was yet to experience. And I had to experience that for myself, which I did eventually. And it was that experience with God 
it was that 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 connection with God, that intimacy with Him, that brought me back into a place of relationship and life with Him. But that wasn't going to happen around a bunch of people that were spouting the rules and regs and the laws and the do this and don't do that. Because I was terrible at all those things as a kid. I'm still bad at it, but I was really bad at it then. Like following rules and doing all that kind of stuff. I was terrible at that stuff. And and I, and because I was terrible at it, I just didn't fit in very well. And so then I just didn't want anything to do with it. I hated everything to do with those kind of things. I hated school. I hated church. I hated being around people that pushed that kind of stuff. I, I, I loved... Being on a, I loved you know, a lot of things, but I didn't love any of those things. I remember every day for years and years and years, I would walk out of school at the last bell. And I would step outside, take a deep breath, and I would say out loud, I'm free. I'm free. And I'd either go to the bus, or I'd go to a car, or I'd walk home. But that was really what was in my heart. That I felt like I wasn't free that whole time. And I'd walk out of that building and that's the first thing I would do. I mean, I was a little kid. You do that in third grade? I did. You do that in second grade? I did. First grade? I did that. Yep. All the way through. At least through, all the way through elementary school. At least I got into junior high. I did that every day. I remember I got into junior high and I was walking. I remember walking to gym class one day. And I just, I just was walking toward gym class and I just went right out the door. I just left, went downtown in the town where the school was, hung out downtown a little while, walked around, just breathed a little bit, walked back, I got back just before gym class was over, walked into gym class, greeted the teacher, he asked, he didn't even ask me, you know, he just looked at me, he's like, you alright? I'm like, yeah, he's like, alright, never turned me in, but I'll never forget that day, I was like, that's a little taste of freedom. And that may sound crazy to some of you, but that's just how I felt about it. And so I didn't want anything to do with any of this. And so for how many years I've been doing this, that you see me doing, I've been fighting, 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 scratching, and clawing to keep people from going back to being good little Pharisees. And you can think all yourself, not me. Yeah, probably you. At least somewhat. Maybe not. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not picking anybody out. I'm not, leaving, I'm not even looking at anybody. You see, I'm looking at the floor, don't you? I'm not looking at anybody. All I'm saying is, is that it takes a massive amount of effort. Massive amount of effort to do that. You don't think so, but it does. And so, what's the meaning of the Scripture? One of the things I've found is that that's God's heart, okay? And, and I'm just going to say that. That's God's heart. This is desire, His want. He wants mercy. He wants mercy. And it's been my experience that those who do not operate in the grace of God themselves, those that do not operate in the grace of God themselves are not pleased when others enjoy it. Those that don't operate in the grace of God themselves are not pleased when others enjoy that grace. 
Jesus is talking to tax collectors, right? He's talking to tax collectors about mercy. Now, I read a bunch of commentaries preparing this Bible study tonight, and every one of them wants to add something to this. They want to add something to this. I don't want to add anything to it. And, and I want you to hear me say that. In fact, some of the versions of the Bible that translate this verse add words to it. They do. Because that is how strong that Pharisee spirit is in us. That the people who translated the Scriptures could read the Greek in the Scriptures. In the Gospel of Matthew, they read the Greek, translated it word for word, and then added some words to it to make it make sense to them. Yeah. Because in this verse, it's like, I'm going to ask you a question. You go down in this verse, and it says, who does Jesus call? Alright? Well, it says in the verse who He calls. Who does He call? He came to call who? Sinners. Now, how many of your Bibles add the words to repentance? Some of your Bibles will, some of you won't. Well, for years, the English versions of the Bible all added, He came to call sinners, and then they added to repentance. Those words aren't even in the original language. But they wanted to add those words and make sure you knew He wasn't just calling sinners. No way. Nuh-uh. Only to repentance. Because He doesn't like sinners just like you don't. Okay? I want to make sure you knew that. So they added those words. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. You know what He wants? You know what He likes? You know what He wants? Mercy. That's what He wants. The Bible says, go and learn what this means. The mean, what is the meaning of this Scripture? That He wants mercy. You see, the Gospel is all about change, right? Well, it is all about change. It's all about love and change and mercy and grace and second chances and, and a new start. That's what the Gospel is all about. That's His Word. And so He goes out to these people, these tax collectors. Everybody hates their guts. Matthew loves them enough and been around them enough to draw them in and say, hey, you got to hear this guy. It changed my life. You listen to Him too. He can change you know, His words and what He has to offer you can change your life too. Come on and hear Him. And so he gets them all there and they're all with Jesus and Jesus is, is speaking mercy and grace and change and all that, all that stuff over them. And, and who's over on the side? The Pharisees are over on the side judging Jesus for loving people. Judging Matthew for loving people. Judging the disciples for hanging out with those people. That's who's on the side. I got this thing, whenever people judge something I'm doing, I always just ask them, well, what are you doing? Because I want to know. You don't like how I'm doing this? Fair enough. What are you doing? What are you doing? I had somebody the other day talking wasn't to me directly, but 
felt like it was to me directly, talking to one of our, our leaders about a better way to reach Muslims than what we do. A better way. A better way. Because they read a book. Alright? Now, I want you to hear me here. We, we've been in, I can't even count the number of Islamic republics in the world. And in those Islamic republics, I can't even tell you how many people we've prayed with to receive Jesus. I have no idea. I could guess, but I have no idea. I'm going to say, you ready? Technical term here, lots. Okay? Lots. It is not uncommon. In fact, we've been doing it for a lot of years. And so I've got somebody telling one of my leaders, oh, this is a better way to reach Muslims because I read it in a book. You follow me? You know what my first question is? Yeah, maybe it is. How many Muslims have you reached for Jesus using your way? You know what the answer to that question was? Zero. So you know what you need to do? Shut up. Sorry. Shut up. Who does Jesus call? Sinners. The purpose of His coming, I'm going to give you two sides of this. The purpose of His coming is to provide opportunity for change. And I can say in the same breath, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Because I firmly believe that the work of the devil is stagnation and the absence of hope. And the work of Jesus is change and the infusion of hope. We provide, because we're now His body, we provide that opportunity. It's our purpose. And so Jesus calls sinners. In our life among the spiritually sick, that's what mercy is. That's mercy. It was mercy that He was among those sinners, those, those tax collectors. That's mercy. What's mercy in our life? Mercy in our life is that we're among the spiritually sick. I mean, the spiritually sick are people that know they're sinners. They know. It's honest, practical. They're sick. When you're sick, you're sick, right? Who goes to the doctor? People that are sick and crazy people. Right? Right? So either... You're going for your checkup. Okay, you're either going for your checkup, you got some procedure needs to be done, you're really sick, right? Or you're a hypochondriac. I mean, but those are the people that go to the doctor. And so that's 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 the role of Jesus. That's the role he's given us. Is that is that we live among, we hang out among, we spend time among those that are spiritually sick. And 
I used to think because this is the this is the the lie in the church. You ready? This is the lie I was fed when I first became a Christian. Well, people don't know they're spiritually sick. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And it took me a little bit to figure out that was a lie. You know who don't know they're spiritually sick? People in the church telling you that people don't know that they're spiritually sick. That's who don't know are the people telling you that people don't know. Okay? People do know. And people, uh, they're ashamed. And people are walking in shame. And they're walking in, in all kinds of, of weird ideas about God and how God feels about them. And what God has for them. And God being mad at them. And God having it out for them. And all the rest of those kind of weird things that people walk around in. I met way more people that know that they're messed up than people that don't know they're messed up. Most people know. They just know. And so, because they know, our, our place there is that place of mercy. And we give the opportunity for change, for second chances, for life, for hope, for more. That's our role. We're not going to be really good with that unless we're walking in grace ourselves. Remember what I said about people that really don't walk in grace? They got such a hard time really being happy for others, enjoying it. It's hard to sell something you don't believe in. It really is. I mean, you can do it, but it's hard. And you come off dishonest most of the time. I didn't tell somebody about the grace of God because I love the grace of God. I live in the grace of God. I need the grace of God. I relish the grace of God. I, 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 I couldn't do without it. I can tell somebody all about the grace of God. And I'm happy when somebody finds the grace of God and gets out of their head and gets out of their muck and gets out of their mire and gets out of the, the self-hatred that they're living in. I love that. I love seeing it. I love seeing that kind of mercy in action. And every time that happens, I know that the, the, the works of the devil in that person's life are destroyed. I know it. And anytime I can see that, anytime I can experience that, that's a good day for me. That's a really good day for me. So let me look at 1 Timothy 1.15. It's like, what do I mean by this? Give me an example. One, okay, so 1, 1 Timothy 1.15. So, that's Paul. What did Paul know about himself? He's a sinner. He knows. Alright, here's a guy who wrote over half the New Testament, right? You think anybody that could say, you think anybody that would be able to say, alright, yeah, you know, I'm doing alright. No, he's the chief of sinners. He was raised a Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisees sat under the teaching of I believe it's Gamaliel in Jerusalem. All right, he was taught by some of the best teachers of their day. 
He was the Pharisee on top of the Pharisee on top of the heap of Pharisees. And yet, he considered himself chief of sinners. He was sick. He lived by grace. He's really good at offering grace to others, too. He's really good at it. He was really good at leading people into a place of mercy and forgiveness. He was really good at the second chances. He was really good at preaching the gospel. He was really good at leading people into relationship with Jesus. Really good at why? Because he knew, needed, lived in, depended on, was nourished by the grace of God. He knew it. So who does Jesus not call? According to this verse. He calls sinners. Who does He not call? The righteous. Okay, don't tell anybody what I'm saying here because they're going to run me out of town. Alright? They will run me right out of Christian town. Okay? Don't come back. Pack your bags. Get out of here because you can't say things like that. Well, Jesus is really saying it, but you understand what I mean? You understand what I just said? Because people are messed up in the head. People are really messed up in the head. Jesus said that. Who'd he call? Sinners. Who'd he not call? The righteous. Wow. Wow. You need to get that straightened out. I'm serious. Let's get that straightened out in our heads, in our spirit, in our mind. Let's get it straightened out. All right? Especially people, you know, you grew up in the church. You get deprogrammed. Let it deprogram right out of you. Let that just deprogram out of you. All right? All that stuff. Because what he, who do he call sinners? Who do he not call the righteous? You know, it's those who think they're righteous. Because there's nobody righteous. Alright? There's none righteous. Not one, the Bible says. But it's the people who think that they are righteous. They have justified themselves. They have taken an estimate of themselves and they have concluded that they are righteous. They may not say that, but that's what they really believe. And they're so able to pretend so able to live in a fantasy that they will go away from Jesus empty every single time they encounter Him. Every time. He didn't call, he didn't call them. And He's not going to call them. And He never called them. He calls sinners. Of which Paul apparently was chief. I can't independently verify that, but that's Paul's opinion of himself. And he wrote over half the New Testament. Yeah, the guy who wrote over half the New Testament is the self-proclaimed champion of sin. You like that? Because you know what I'm going to ask you next? You don't like that? Well, how much of the New Testament did you write? Right, see? See, we're circling back on a couple of things here. Yeah. 
Because it's time to leave behind all this stuff that doesn't work. Okay? If it ain't been working, maybe you got something wrong. If it ain't been working, maybe you dismissed something you shouldn't have dismissed. If it ain't been working, maybe you need to reconsider a few things. Jesus came to call sinners. You still living in the fantasy? If you are, he didn't come to call you. You want to live in that little righteous, good person fantasy? Go ahead. But Jesus didn't come to call you. He came to call people that live with the reality of what life is, who we are, what we are, where we came from, and all that that brings with it, baggage, all of it. All of it. I think I'm going to leave it there. I want to encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you right now. What is He saying to you? The one thing I didn't want you to do tonight is exempt yourself from this. I did not, I pray that you were not able to detach yourself from this word tonight. But I pray that you would take hold of this word, attach yourself to it, and let the change happen. Just let it happen. Just let it happen. Let the truth happen. Let reality happen. Religion's not what it's about. Ceremonial law is not what it's about. Ceremony is not what it's about. No. Not even sacrifice. It's not what it's about. And maybe you just need to go and learn the meaning of Hosea 6.6. Maybe. Maybe you need to go and learn mercy. Because that's God's heart. It's God's heart pour out mercy. God's heart pour out forgiveness. God's heart to extend grace. God's heart to love. I want that heart. I want to know that heart. You want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Why don't you just start there? Start there. I want that. I need that. 
I'm living proof of that. I want more of that. I want that for the people around me. I want that for my family. I want that for my friends. I want for that, that for the people that I meet. I want that for the people that I come into contact with. I want that. I want it. And I'm going to give as many opportunities for that as I can. Heavenly Father, I pray He speaks. Pray we'd have ears to hear. Pray for some of us who change us. Man, how many times is it going to take to change our mind about this? How many times is it going to take to change our heart about this? How many times? I don't know. I guess as many as it takes. The change is here today. Change is offered today. A new start is offered right here and right now. Tonight, here's a new start. Here's a new opportunity for you. Tonight, take it. Take it. Grab hold of it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I give you honor and praise tonight. We thank you for change. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the comunidad. Yeah, see, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.